Dear Mother, this has been an eventful day. Last night, about nine and a half o'clock, a fire broke out here, and from that time to this, it has raged fearfully. We are in ruins. All the business portion of the city has fallen prey to the fiery fiend. Our magnificent streets for acres and acres lined with elegant structures are a heap of sightless rubbish. It cannot be described. One needs to see the wreck to appreciate it, and then he cannot believe that such havoc could be wrought in so short a time. Had you been with me all night and all day, seeing this hell of fire doing its awful mission, then you could realize how these ruins came. What a sight, a sea of fire. The heavens all ablaze, the air filled with burning embers, the wind blowing fiercely and tossing firebrands in all directions. Thousands upon thousands of people rushing frantically about, burned out of shelter, without food, the rich of yesterday poor today, destruction everywhere. Is it not awful? It makes me sick. One could but exclaim, my God, when will it end? The end is not yet. Terrible is the fire now burning through tis five miles from where I write, so I am in no danger, though our family dare not go to bed. They are camped on the floor. Tis midnight, and I am keeping watch. Everything is gone. All our public buildings and massive locks. All the hotels except one, and that a minor one. The courthouse and records, post office, and United States courthouse. All, all are gone. This is too true. I wish it were other. The fire extended over acres of ground, and it left nothing intact. Our banks are all included in this heart-ending catastrophe. I had a few hundred dollars in the merchants, and this is lost. I am discouraged, and what I do I know not, and what to do I know not. My office burned about three o'clock this morning. I barely got out a few papers and just escaped with my life. As I reached the street, the street was full of flames and smoke. I had to run for dear life. $5,000 worth of books beside furniture fed the flames, and as I went out not to enter again, leaving all that valuable stuff to be devoured. I cannot but cry. Mr. Roberts, whose library and building this was, and who is my dearest friend here, and with whom I am concerned in business, loses all and is tonight a sad poor man. I had many things in the office. They all went. I saved nothing. Mrs. Thomas, with whom I board, loses nearly everything. Our house tonight is like the house of death. The whole city is in grief. Insurance companies can pay nothing. Two blocks that I had charge of as to renting and collecting rents, and for which I received $500 yearly, are among things of the past. My office is gone. I am stripped, and you may conclude that I am about vanquished. I cannot see any way to get along here. Thirty years of prosperity cannot restore us. It looks as though I must leave here, and what to do I know not. Possibly I may come home. All newspaper offices are destroyed. When we get papers, I'll send them. I am going to try and sleep a little if possible now. Die boy, Jonas. State of Illinois, Executive Department, Springfield, November 3rd, 1871. His Excellency U.S. Grant, President of the United States. Sir, I have the honor to enclose you a printed slip cut from the Chicago Journal, a highly respectable paper published in Chicago, and respectfully ask your attention to its contents. My apology for troubling your excellency with a paper of the character of that is enclosed is that it is stated 
therein that four companies of the 8th United States Infantry have been ordered from New York to Chicago and will arrive there tomorrow, today, subject to the call of the authorities and that the reasons for ordering troops to Chicago are that the large supplies the Relief Society will have in store during the winter were not deemed safe. Besides, threatened strikes in some quarters indicated that laborers willing to work might not be allowed to do so, and that an application stating these facts was signed for the offices of the re officers of the Relief Society and other citizens pre presented to General Sheridan and by him approved and referred to the Secretary of War. In addition to this, rumors in from the form of telegraphic dispatches from Washington and Chicago have reached me that troops were ordered to Chicago for purposes connected with the safety of property and the preservation of order in the city, but no information of the existence of the dangers alluded to have reached me from any quarters whatever. I cheerfully concede that it is for the President to designate the situations of the troops composing the Army, and that he is under no obligations founded upon the Constitution or the laws or upon the rules of official courtesy to communicate his orders or the reasons that influenced him in making them to the governors of any of the states, unless the orders in question or the presence of the troops are intended in some way to affect or influence the internal affairs of the particular state to which the troops are sent. In the latter case, it will be readily it will readily occur to you that the governor of the state, whose duty it is to enforce the laws, is deeply concerned for the troops, and the orders under which they are to act may operate to diminish or greatly increase the difficulty of his official position. I am happy in the consciousness that the authorities of the state of Illinois are abundantly able to protect every interest of the people that depends upon its internal peace and good order, and am unwilling to believe that the President of the United States, acting upon information of a contrary character communicated by private citizens to an officer of the Army, has ordered any portion of the Army into the state to be subject to a call of authorities either to protect the storehouses of the Relief Committee or to interfere with the possible, though not probable, strikes of laborers. I therefore deem it due to the importance of the subject, frankly, to inquire of Your Excellency whether the troops ordered to Chicago are intended or instructed to obey the call of any authorities of the state of Illinois, or the city of Chicago, or in any way whatever to assume the protection either of property or the preservation of order in that city. I have the honor to be, with great respect, etc., Jean de blah, blah, blah. On October 8, 1871, Fire Engulf, Chicago, a growing Midwest industrial and trade center with a population of 300,000. The fire began on Sunday evening in a dairy barn behind the cottage of Catherine and Patrick O'Leary on the city's crowded west side. Two alarms from a neighborhood signal box drew no response. High winds spread embers far and wide for another 45 minutes before a spotter on the top of the city courthouse finally raised the alarm and rang the city fire bells. Five companies rushed in to continue, contain the blaze but by then it was out of control, spreading rapidly over the, with the aid of the city's thousands of wooden sidewalks and buildings. By midnight, the fire had jumped the Chicago River, entering the city's central business district and leveling it. By 2.30 a.m., the wall of flame, half a mile thick, crossed the river to the north side. About 3.30 a.m., the fire destroyed the pumping station on Michigan Avenue, cutting off all city water. Residents, at first, greeted the blaze as spectacle, gazing from their windows. But as it spread, they fed in, fled in swarms to seek safety. In this week's first letter, Chicago lawyer Jonas Hutchinson describes the apocalyptic first night of the fire, which forced Chicagoans to flee their homes in mass, carrying what they could and abandoning, abandoning often as they ran, 
They didn't. People took refuge wherever they could, by the shore of Lake Michigan, in cemeteries, and in the open prairie to the north, until the flames finally began to subside early on Tuesday morning. When the smoke finally cleared, the damage was staggering. Several hundred people had died, 122 miles of wooden sidewalks were gone, as were 1,600 stores, 60 factories, 10 schools, 37 churches, several major newspaper offices, most of the city's banks and law firms, and three railroad depots. Only a few buildings still stood in the five-square-mile burn zone, among them the O'Leary's two cottages. 90,000 people were left homeless, and many more left were jobless. As Hutchinson wrote in his letter home, the whole city is in grief. In the aftermath of the fire, rumors of looting, rioting, and murder circulated throughout the traumatized city. At the same time, Chicagoans learned that the mayor had freed the prisoners in the basement of the city courthouse in a bid to save their lives as the fire approached the jail. The question of how to make the city function, tend to the needy, and maintain order became paramount. The police department swore in volunteers to patrol the streets, but they were overmatched by the task. So at the prodding of prominent citizens, Chicago Mayor Roswell B. Mason turned to General Philip H. Sheridan in the U.S. Army to maintain order. Sheridan was a former U.S. Union Cavalry commander, then engaged in an ongoing war on the few remaining native tribes that still roamed the Midwest. Miller gave Sheridan full authority over the city, and over the next two weeks he brought in thousands of soldiers to maintain order. In two moves that would come back to fight him, he supplemented his force of army regulars with local volunteers and authorized his men to shoot anyone who failed to identify themselves. On the evening of October 20th, one of the local volunteers did just that, Theodore Treat. An undergraduate at the old University of Chicago and a volunteer member of the University Guards ordered a man to halt near the school campus building to ex- campus to identify himself. The man, drunk, told Treat to go to hell and bang away. Treat restrained himself briefly, but as the man stalked away, he fired. Treat's bullet killed the man, quickly identified as Colonel Thomas Grosvenor, a Civil War veteran, prosecuting attorney, and a leading citizen of Chicago. He'd been among those who'd originally urged Sheridan to place the city under martial law. Grosvenor's death set off a firestorm. The Chicago Times, then the city's largest newspaper, railed against the Army's presence in Chicago, comparing it to the occupation of southern states by Union troops during Reconstruction and dubbing the university volunteers as the university assassins. Two days after the shooting, on October 22nd, Mayor Mason suggested to Sheridan that it was time for the troops to withdraw. Sheridan agreed. He ordered the troops away, and the volunteer corps disbanded. Only a few days later, several prominent citizens, including industrialist George Pullman, appeared to Sheridan to stay, appealed to Sheridan to stay, claiming that ongoing unrest threatened relief operations, while potential labor strikes put efforts to rebuild in jeopardy. Sheridan lobbied to keep fresh federal troops in the city's potential on the outskirts, and William T. Sherman, commanding general of the U.S. Army, approved the request. In this week's second letter, Illinois Governor John M. Palmer, a former Civil War general himself, writes to President Ulysses S. Grant to protest continued attempts to send federal soldiers into Illinois for peacekeeping without the consultation of the state. It was one of several letters of protest written by state officers and legislators in the aftermath of the fire and the death of Colonel Grosvenor. The Illinois state legislator also held a vote to condemn the Army's presence. As with many public scandals, the outcry against Grosvenor, for all its passion, subsided relatively quickly as Chicagoans turned their focus towards the task of rebuilding. Many business 
is established temporary offices and residences in the days after the fire. A large department store set up shop in a streetcar barn. Workers cleared rubble, built barracks, and temporary housing. Within weeks, photographers traveling to the city to photograph the damage had a little to capture. Within two years, lots in the burn area were worth more than they were before the fire. By 1880, Chicago's population had risen to 500,000, and by 1890, it was a city of one million boasting the world's first skyscrapers. Heavily fireproofed, of course. Today, the Chicago Fire Department's Training Academy sits on the site where the fire began.